We have been in a series on the book of Revelation for quite a little while now. We started back in the fall and we went through the seven churches and then we kind of got through Advent and carried on with the book. And we have arrived at one of those texts which is particularly difficult. So here's how this is going to work. I'm going to read the text right now and I'm going to preach sort of loosely from it. I try to preach in an expository way and to just go through the text, but this one is probably, it's just, it's not gonna work that way. So by the time we get done, you might have more questions about Revelation 17 than I have provided you with answers. And I have the perfect solution for that. Um, there will be a Bible study at seven o'clock this evening. Um, we are live here at the church. There will also be an email that goes out with a link so that you can join by Zoom. This is not our usual interactive question and answer study. It becomes a little bit more of a lecture-oriented thing. But we will walk through this text at that time and look at some of the details that we just cannot address. And I think even just with me reading through the text, you're going to realize why this is one that would be particularly difficult. So reading from Revelation chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful." And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, will hate the prostitute. 
They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. May we pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to hear and to understand and to receive, to listen and to keep the words of this prophecy, Lord, knowing that we are blessed as we do, just as your people have been since those first days when it was read to the seven churches in Asia. Give us ears to hear this morning what your spirit is saying to the church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever read through the Bible with your children, small children, or maybe even teenage children, and you come to a text like this, well, this is one of those texts we kind of gloss over. You know, we're, we're reading it, we're trying to skip the parts that we don't want to have to explain to our children, you know, mommy, what is, yeah, we, we just don't want to answer that question. Or maybe we skip this text altogether. The language here is so graphic and it's uncomfortable. It's hard to read aloud in the privacy of our own families, never mind to preach a sermon on it. And trust me, there are others in scripture just like it and worse. Certain chapters of the book of Ezekiel, especially chapter 16, and the whole book of Hosea, that old covenant prophet who was called by God to marry a faithless woman and take her as his wife, they come to mind. Even Isaiah, the son of Amos, everybody's favorite, Old Testament prophet was inspired by the Spirit in chapter 1, verse 21 of his prophecy to write in a similar vein. Isaiah, in Isaiah 1, 21, says, How the faithful city, and that faithful city in Isaiah's prophecy would be Jerusalem, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. And that's not a bad place for us to pick up this morning, because in Revelation chapter 17, the Apostle John is being inspired by the very same Holy Spirit to write about the very same city, Jerusalem, using the same analogy that Isaiah used in chapter 1 of his book. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And it's important that we remember the source here. It's important to remember that Ezekiel chapter 16 and Hosea 9 and Revelation chapter 17 are every bit as much God-breathed scripture as John 3.16 or Romans 10, 9 and 10. This passage that I just read a few moments ago, awkward as it may be, is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. 
he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So this is the word of the Lord, which means that there was something there for the people who first heard it 2,000 years ago, and there is something here for us as well. We just read that Jesus gave this revelation to John by way of an angel, and we saw in chapter 17, John wrote that he, at least one of the seven angels, responsible for administering the justice of God's covenant on the faithless people of the land, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And here's where we're going to go into a little bit more of a review and a little bit more of an introduction and From this point on, we're not going to be looking at Revelation 17 with anything like the detail that I normally would. I will plug Bible study a couple more times before we're done. But there's a change in perspective here, and that's significant in the book of Revelation. Early in the book, in the very first week, as a matter of fact, we saw that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. We don't know exactly what that looked like until that point when John was in the spirit and he heard this loud voice like thunder speaking from behind him and he turned and he saw the risen and ascended and glorified Christ and he saw him moving in and through and among the church. The church was portrayed in this vision like the lamps that burned day and night outside the veil of the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary of God. And Jesus is presented as that great high priest who moves through the church tending those lamps, making sure that they continue to burn, making sure that the church remains a city on a hill and that our light shines before men in such a way that they see and give glory to our God in heaven. Later on in chapter 4, we were told, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So first, John was in the spirit. He was in the church. Well, then he hears this voice saying, Come up here, and he is caught up in the spirit to the throne of God himself. I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And from that point in Revelation chapter 4 until the end of chapter 12, John is there. That's his perspective. He is there at the throne of God in heaven, and he is seeing what's happening from the same perspective that God sees it. That's one of the reasons, I believe, that even the judgment texts in the first half of the book of Revelation tend to be less graphic. In many cases, we're seeing the same event described over and over again in four or five different ways. But at the beginning of the book, John is seeing them from that perspective before the throne. No doubt there was a significant difference between the appearance of the D-Day Armada as it departed the English side of the channel from how that appeared when it arrived on the shores of France and Holland and Belgium. In the one case, it's this mighty army. And maybe somebody standing on the English side sees that army and feels a chill or trembles at the thought of the power that is potential to that group. But on the other side, it's blood and guts. 
Those gates go down and men with machine guns charge the beaches and try to break through the barbed wire and to get past those defenses and to set a beachhead for the army. Same event, just being seen from one side of the channel or the other. John sees everything up through the end of chapter 12 from that heavenly perspective. So a rider goes forth on a white horse with a crown on his head and a bow in his hand, and he is gone conquering and to conquer. Well, when we get to the seals, we see that in a little more detail. When we get to the trumpets, or when we get to the trumpets, a little more detail. When we get to the bulls, it's a lot more detail. So we're seeing things from these perspectives. But at the end of chapter 12, in the beginning of 13, John moves from the throne room to the sand of the sea, standing between the abyss, the chaos of the Gentile world, and particularly the chaos of the Roman Empire in John's day, and the land, the land of Israel. And this land-sea contrast is an idea that comes up over and over and over again in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. And it's one that most often has spiritual implications far beyond the simple geography of, yeah, when the sea meets the land, there's a beach, and usually that means sand. But speaking of this land and sea, in chapter 10, we read of a mighty angel representing Jesus himself as, in fact, all angels do. All angels represent Jesus. But this angel had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. This is not a literal place where some angel stood. It's saying he stood basically taking a stand on the whole world, on the abyss of the Gentile world and on the solid ground of the land of God's people. And then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, remember he's holding a book in one hand, and he raises his right hand to the God of heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay." So we're winding down one of those cycles of vision that John has, those sort of layered looks at the same thing. He's saying, we are coming to the end of this one. There will be no more delay, but in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. But we're not quite halfway through the book. At that point, you may recall, John then is told to go to that angel to take the scroll from his hand and to eat it. And having consumed, having taken in the very words of God's covenant, then he is told that he must further prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Something happens here. The angel is standing, one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, holding the book, got his hand raised to heaven and he swears this oath. John, who has witnessed everything so far from his position beside the throne of God in heaven, is told, go and take the book from that angel. So he goes and he takes the book. And from about that point, he will be 
prophesying to peoples and nations and languages and kings from the perspective not of the docks where the armada left, but from the perspective of the invasion beaches. For the second half of the book of Revelation, John is like a reporter who has been embedded with the angels and the hosts of the Lamb. So he is there, and this is happening from his spiritual perspective right around him as the host of heaven hits the enemy head on. And in chapters 13 through 16, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, things get real. One of the seven angels or one of the four living creatures who are there constantly around the throne of God, the, the cherubim and seraphim, we sing about them. One of them is assigned to take seven bowls full of the wrath of God, and he is to give them one bowl each to seven angels who come out of the sanctuary. They come from the sanctuary because God has sent them to dispense divine justice. In our Bible study last Sunday evening, we looked briefly at the results of these judgments as those angels take the bowls and pour them out, both on the land but also on the throne of the beast. And with the outpouring of the seventh bowl, a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Again, we come to the end of one of those cycles of visions. It's not like, Something was going to end when the seventh trumpet sounded, and now something else is going to end when the seventh bowl is poured out. There's this, like I said, a layering of these visions. And we keep going back and sort of starting over and then working our way through to the end, seeing them from different kinds of perspectives. So when the seventh bowl was poured out, there's this loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Verse 18, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great. That's the first time Babylon comes into the book of Revelation. God remembered her to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And that's where those bold judgments kind of come to an end. Another interpretive thing that you can see in the book of Revelation, look for those thunders and lightnings and earthquakes because they just keep coming up at the same point in these various cycles that John, or the Holy Spirit, through John takes us through. Well, at the beginning of chapter 17, we have another change in perspective. John is carried away in the spirit into a wilderness where he can observe with more detail not only the judgment on Babylon itself, but he can observe the reasons for the judgment. So he went on, and, and I'm going to move through this very quickly. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Well, we've met this character before. The dragon in chapter 12 had seven heads and ten horns, and that dragon was clearly identified for us as that old serpent, the devil or Satan. Well, then in chapter 13, the beast that comes up out of the abyss, out of the sea, has seven heads and ten horns, which is not surprising 
because it's the dragon who gives power to that beast. Now this woman that John sees was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. If you just stop there, it would be so much easier. But one commentator has suggested, and I believe he's right, that what we're seeing is sort of an anti-type of the high priest on the Day of Atonement who was clothed in much the same way, in an ephod with gold and jewels and precious stones, and carrying the golden cup in which he used to pour out the libation of blood in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. But here, this cup that looks so beautiful in her hand, this golden cup is full of abominations and the impurities of her immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. Now, you've heard me say it already, and I will say it again, and we'll talk at some length about this tonight, that this is not... Babylon, by the time John wrote this book, Babylon was no more, and the book was written to make sense to people who received it in the first century. But what John does is something that the prophets quite often do in the Old Covenant and something that John himself had done in the chapter where he described the two witnesses being slain and their bodies laying in the street of the city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. But then he goes on to say, spiritually it's called Sodom and Egypt, but it's where their Lord was crucified. And where was their Lord crucified? Clearly, not in Sodom, not in Egypt. He was crucified in Jerusalem. So what's the point of using Sodom and Egypt? Well, it comes up in the Old Testament prophets as well. When you really want to insult somebody, you call them names. And what God is saying to the people of Jerusalem in this day is, you think that you are all that. You think that you are my chosen covenant people, and in reality to me, you are like Sodom and you are like Egypt. And if you think about the thing that connects Sodom and Egypt, it's judgment, it's wrath, it's the plagues that God poured out on each of those places when he was ready to truly deliver his people. And now Jerusalem has become that city that has to be judged because they are persecuting the people of God and putting to death those who follow Jesus. And God is saying the time has come for judgment. The time has come to deliver those saints and martyrs of Jesus Christ. Well, now he goes on to call her Babylon. And there's a whole history for that in the Old Testament. And again, if you're interested, come tonight. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. If there was any question in our minds who this is, we would go back to the closing verses of Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is addressing the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, woe to you. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets, 
And you say, if we had been alive in the days of the fathers, we wouldn't have put them to death, and in so doing, you testify that you are the heirs of those who killed them. Now go ahead, fill up the measure of the iniquity of your fathers. And then he goes on to say, I, I tell you the truth, upon you, upon this generation, that generation that was alive at the time that Jesus was speaking will come all of the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom they slew between the altar and the sanctuary. And so here, Babylon is portrayed as drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And this use of the name Babylon the Great wouldn't confuse us so much if we would just hold steady and we need to hold steady to the idea that Revelation is a first century prophecy sent to first century Christians with the idea that it would be a blessing for them to hear it and understand it and keep it within that first century context. So of course there is truth here for us too. But originally it was sent to the seven churches in Asia and our understanding of this book has to be done in a way that they would have understood it first. And again, more at Bible study. But the original audience would have heard all of these words about Babylon and the mother of prostitutes and so on. And in the context of scripture, they would have come to the conclusion, as we noted in the beginning, that the Spirit just used these same ideas and same words to inspire John to send the same message that the Spirit inspired Isaiah to send hundreds of years before. Ezekiel sent the same message in even more graphic language as did Jeremiah and Hosea as a reason for this. And it's not because... Jerusalem or Israel at this time was particularly more immoral in the literal physical sense than the nations around about, probably far less than even the culture in which we live. But the idea of adultery in scripture, more often than being about sexual immorality in a physical sense, it's about a spiritual immorality. And the reason for this is bound up in the idea that essentially God married his people. God married Israel when he entered into covenant with her at Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments, the whole of the law really, can best be understood as a marriage covenant between God and his people. Ezekiel uses that language explicitly. Now, the, the implications of that are vast, and we can't go into them this morning, but simply, that explains Moses' reaction. When he comes down the mountain, you, you, you remember the story, he comes down the mountain the first time, and he's carrying the two tablets of stone on which God has inscribed the words of the law, the words of the covenant that he had spoken in an audible voice to the people as they had gathered there at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is coming down the mountain. He's carrying these priceless tablets of stone inscribed by the very finger of God. And something bad happens. Well, when you understand that Exodus chapters 19 to 24 basically describes a wedding. 
You could walk through the events of those chapters and you could walk through the Hebrew ceremony and see, yeah, God took his bride and entered into covenant with her there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And three times, first in chapter 19, verse 8, and then again in chapter 24, verses 3 and 7, the people stand there before God and Moses and they say, I do. Okay, what they really said was all the words which the Lord has said, we will do three times. And then after they have said that for the third time, Moses arranges for 12 altars and 12 bulls to be slain and he collects the blood of those bulls and the people march by and Moses dips a bundle of weeds into a bowl filled with blood, and as the people march by, he sprinkles them with the blood, and he says, this is the blood of the covenant. If that sounds familiar, it should. It was the very first time that God had taken this people to himself, and he had entered into this relationship with them by covenant, and he had sanctified them by the blood of the covenant, and he had made them his own. And then he invited Moses and Aaron and her and the leaders of Israel to come up onto the mountain and to have a feast just like you do after a wedding ceremony. And they sat there and they saw the glory of God enthroned above a firmament and they ate and drank in the presence of God and they did not die. All of this had taken place before Moses ever went up the mountain. I know I've said it before, but if you ever watch the Charlton Heston version, it's garbage, don't believe it, that's not how it happened. Turn off the movie and read your Bible. The people had already been baptized in the blood of the covenant at the foot of the mountain before Moses ever went up there to receive the law. So he goes up there and God is giving him it in writing, even though it's already been spoken. But then in chapter 32, there's that awkward moment when God is speaking to Moses and he says, go down. Actually, the go down Moses it's not about going down in Egypt. It's about go down from the mountain because the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, I love how the interplay of that, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And as soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. And these days we want to say, hey, Moses, chill out. Don't be so judgy, man. You were up there in the mountain for over a month, after all. It's only to be expected that the people would drift a little bit. But if you think of the whole sequence of events like a wedding ceremony, imagine a groom the ceremony is done, the vows have been made, the rings have been exchanged, the dinner has been eaten, and then the groom goes off to one room to change into his traveling clothes, and the bride goes off to another room to change into her traveling clothes, and imagine the groom sends his best man, just go knock on the door of the lady's changing room and see 
if they're ready to meet up and to head out on our honeymoon. But when the best man goes and he knocks on the door, he finds the bride engaged in an adulterous relationship with her ex. That's what's happening in Exodus. When Moses comes down the mountain and he finds Israel prostituting themselves before the golden calf, and he takes the tablets and he breaks them in the same way that that groom in the illustration might be tempted to take the wedding certificate and just say, nope, this thing's not worth the paper it's printed on. Moses is saying, this covenant's not worth the stone that was carved into because God's bride has become faithless. Does that put his reaction into a different light for us? Does it help us understand what Moses did and the whole book of Hosea? If you haven't read it, or if you haven't read it recently, remember that's the one where God told a prophet, I want you to go and I want you to marry a harlot. I want you to marry a woman who by definition is not going to be faithful to you. Because in your relationship to her, I'm going to give Israel an illustration of their relationship to me. And in Hosea 9 verse 1, the brokenhearted prophet wrote, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other people's. For you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. And I hope we're understanding what they're getting at in those Old Testament words, because that's what John is getting at in Revelation 17. Except in the first century, the faithless bride not only cheated on her husband, when he came to make one last appeal to her, she crucified him. The book of Revelation has sometimes been referred to as a covenant lawsuit. It could just as easily be thought of as a covenant divorce. And there is so much more there that we need to look at this evening. But for now, just this. If this is all about old covenant Israel, and I believe it is, then what does it say to us? Well, what goes around, right? James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, wrote to the people of God probably in about the same time frame that John was receiving the revelation. So James' message, also inspired by the Holy Spirit, was maybe aimed in a couple of different directions. He may have been speaking to that remnant of Old Covenant Israel, but he's also speaking to the church scattered abroad. And in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, he says, What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures, your passions, you adulterous people. The thing is, James didn't really write, you adulterous people. What James wrote literally is, you adulteresses. 
And he didn't do that because he wanted to pick on the ladies. And he's not talking about a specific sin of the flesh here anyway. That would certainly be included in the behavior that he's discussing in this book. But James is speaking to the church as the bride of Christ when he says, you adulteresses, don't you get it? Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And Moses might have said the same thing to the people of Israel when he caught them worshiping around the golden calf. Don't you know that friendship with this idolatrous way of life is enmity with God? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea did say it quite explicitly. And so did John in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And James speaks to the church across time and says it again, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I don't think that we could overemphasize this in our day. Because some people have taken the idea of friendship evangelism to an extreme and acted as if we can't reach the world if we're not friends with the world. We need to be friends with the world. James says, no, it's not how it works. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And he goes on, or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? It's an Old Testament idea that James picks up. And he says, God has sealed you to be his bride and he is jealous when you go off and become friends with the world and make him your enemy as the apostle paul wrote in second corinthians 11 for i feel a divine jealousy for you since i betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to christ again he's talking about the church he's saying i betrothed you church at corinth to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that the, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And that's what happens when we want to be a friend of the world, when we want to love what they love, when we want what they want, and even when we fear what they fear when we listen to the voice of that old serpent, the devil, luring us away from pure devotion to Christ, and always, always with the same tactic, the same question. Really? Did God, did God really say that? Are you sure? Because, I don't know, just sounds kind of old-fashioned to me. Sounds like the kind of thing that might lose you your place at the table with the cool kids. And of course it probably will, unless you stop to think that if the cool kids happen to be friends of the world, then the cool kids are enemies of God. And in that case, we might rather sit at some other table altogether. But he gives more grace, says James. Therefore it says God opposes the proud 
but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In a week or two, we're going to come to Revelation chapter 19, and there's going to be a pile of awkwardness in that text too. But as we turn from the word of the Lord this morning to the table of the Lord, let me call your attention to verses 6 through 9 of Revelation chapter 19. Because when the judgment of the faithless bride is complete, John hears a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven singing what we will see as a kind of an unlikely song, we might think. They're singing hallelujah. When the judgment of the faithless bride is complete, he hears this loud voice of a great multitude in heaven as the sound of many waters and as the sounds of mighty thundering saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us exult and rejoice and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride, that would be us, the church, the bride of Christ, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And so they are. So let us draw near, humbling ourselves before the Lord and taking our place at his table, joining him once more to feast on his grace. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. May we pray. Father in heaven, help us to not seek to be friends of the world and thereby make ourselves your enemies, but rather, Father, to walk in grace and in humility, to draw near to you, knowing that you will draw near to us, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, and then to await your providence and your mercy to raise us up and exalt us as you have done when you raised us up with Christ and seated us at his right hand in heavenly places in Christ. Father, it's from there that we join you this morning at this table. And we pray that as we come in your grace and mercy, you would give us all that we may receive here to strengthen us, in our faith, to renew us in our hope. And Father, to give us a love for you and for one another that abounds and overflows to your glory and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.